I love the idea that this is actually going to be the cold open, which is you explaining it to me and me being like, huh? No. All right. Anyway, you. Uh... Oh my god! I might just be you singing now. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. <laughs> I should have known. Why do I? Why? Why, Graham? Listeners, welcome to Drock, a monthly podcast wherein we read through Judge Dredd the complete case files. I am Jeff Lester, and with me is my lovely, talented, and effervescent co-host, Graham McMillan. Hi, everyone. We are coming to you live from No, It's Not John Workman block uh, in Mega City <laughs> One. <laughs> oh, man. Uh do you want to explain it or should you just not let it hang it out there? No, no I, I, I'm torn. Uh, uh, if you want to explain it, Graham, I, 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 you, you are... Jeff and I were going back and forth about the volume we're about to read, and I'm going to introduce that in a second. Uh, earlier on this week, and Jeff got the letterer slash artist John Workman mixed up with one of the artists in this volume, John Higgins. Yes. Uh, and for some reason, I think, I can't remember if I was the dick or if both of us were being dicks. Um, you know, it, 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 I was, I was a dick, but I was not a dick uh, to the extent that it, I thought I was. Because I was going to say I corrected him in all caps, but what actually happened was you said John Workman in all caps. So. I did, I did, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's one of those things where I really should have double checked it. And Graham, I have to say, it, it drives me nuts. I'm like, wait a minute, because of course I was like, no, it's going to be fine. It's the John that worked on Watchmen. And I'm like, fucking John Hickman, Higgins, did John Workman also work on Watchmen? I meant to look this up right before no, we did. No, Dave Gibbons led with Watchmen. Did Workman, am I wrong? Did Workman do, not do some sort of seminal DC North American work? Uh, John Workman? I mean, John Workman was at that point lettering like Thor for Marvel. God damn like it. Like Simonson's Thor. Done like he's lettered stuff for DC. Maybe sure, that maybe he, that's why I'm confused. Is is he Simonson's go-to letterer? Is it yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes. maybe that's why. Anyway, so yeah, so I'm a I was a total dumb shit because I adored the art from John Higgins in this volume. It's going to be a very interesting volume to talk about, and I will spare Graham. We are talking about Judge Dredd: The Complete Case Files, uh, Volume Thirty Seven covering uh, Prague's 1336 to 1364 and the magazine uh, 201 through 206. The year for Mega City 1 is 2025. And these stories ran, I think, in 2002. Does that sound right? 2002, 2003. 2003. Oh, it's, interesting. It's, it's all 2003. It's, it's the first time I feel in a while that we've had a uh, volume that all, only takes 
was published across one year. One year, yeah. Um, but I guess it's just six months worth of comics. For the most part, these are written by John Wagner and Gordon Rennie, although there are Robbie Morrison stories in there. There's an Ian Edgington, uh, somewhat surprisingly. Yeah. And there's a Garth Ennis, even more surprising. Yes. Uh, there's a Garth Ennis run in the magazine, which is the one drawn by John Higgins that, yes. uh, that Jeff was talking about. Art-wise, we are all over the shop. There's some Cam Kennedy, there's some Paul Marshall, there's some John Burns. Charlie Adlard of Walking Dead fame is here yep. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian Gibson is here, Simon Fraser's here, Paul Hoden shows up, PG Hoden shows up for the first time. Um, oh, Dean really? Bombs. This is his first? I thought he showed up I'm earlier. Fairly, I, th- okay. I might be wrong, but mm-hmm. it's definitely early PG Hoden now. Yeah. Um, CPU there, and I love the CPR in, in his story. Iscara's mm-hmm. uh, in here, Higgins is here. Yeah, it's 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 a varied volume, and uh, for me overall, it's a varied volume. <laughs> you know, there, there's no, it's it's last volume. I like I was strongly in favor of, mm-hmm. you know, and it was again, it was also very varied, but you had like a substantial chunk of it was great. Mm-hmm. Like about a third of that book last time was was the Dread Alien story, which right. I really liked. Yeah. Um, but like even outside that, there was a lot of really good work in there. Mm-hmm. And with this one, there's while there's not really anything that's bad, bad. I do feel there's a lot of treading water here, mm-hmm. and and it feels like it. You know, it's kind me. of a shame. I feel like Graham in another in another life in another time. Instead of Drock or Dross, we would have been Dread or Tread, and that. that <laughs> I'm kind of kind of bummed we didn't get a chance to break that out as our rating system. Because hearing you say that, I was like, oh, Judge Tread. There you go. Um, <laughs> See, if I didn't name the episodes after quotes from the book, mm-hmm. this one would be Judge Dredd. Really <laughs> um, no, but there, there's, again, it's not that things are necessarily bad, mm-hmm. but there, it's, there does feel a lot of stories that are, you know, fine, or mm-hmm. stories that are following up and seem like epilogues to other stories like the trial of orlock which starts off right has great art by cam kennedy but is a two-parter that feels i mean incredibly late for what it is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know revenge of the chief judge's man Mm -hmm. feels lighter than than you know what it should be ostensibly you know even something like i uh, maybe maybe that's just my take Mm-hmm. But like even something like Satanist, like Chief Judge's Man and Satanist are both like lengthy stories mm-hmm. per se. Like Chief Judge's Man is eight parts. Yeah. The Satanist is seven. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. But they feel very light. That's interesting. Because they did not for me, per se. Um, really? Yeah. Okay, so which which of those three do you want to tackle first? Well, let's talk about the trial of Orlock, because it it is the opener. And I think it's the one where you and I start off with, I think, the most in agreement. Like, the trial of Orlock has been coming for some time. And I think one of the things that's somewhat frustrating about it is you have Orlock several volumes back releasing a plague that ends up killing the entire floating city of... Sin City, I Sin think. Sin City, yeah. Yeah, Sin that City. was uh, Orlok's attempt to actually destroy uh, Mega City 1 with said disease, but was thwarted by Dread and the judges. Orlok and Dread are um, sort of 
long-term, long-time nemeses, because uh, Orlock has long-time listeners of the podcast, long-time readers of Dread Know, go all the way back to the very beginning of the Apocalypse War. Orlock is the uh, Sov City um, Russian super agent that uh, starts off the block war madness that builds directly into the Apocalypse War and more or less tenderizes uh, Mega City 1 for it. Of course, at the end of the Apocalypse War, Dread pushes the button and bombs the shit out of Sob City 1, uh, drops nuclear bombs and just blows it right off the map. Whether or not that is quote-unquote Dread's original sin is something that Wagner uh, has um, touched on in various ways, both uh, in favor of and against that argument, and it's ones that we've talked about. And our listeners uh, over at whitewhatpodcast.com in the threads, uh, particularly Vord, whose name I'm going to invoke several times during this episode, I'm sure, uh, talks about how... Uh, Wagner is way more of a dread was justified in what he was doing. He's not the super monster uh, that many of us take him has and uh, about which the later Orlock stories feel like a bit of revisionism. Um, all of which to, to say... I, I, would, I, would, I just want to say again, to you, because one of your arguments the last time we had this conversation and it got yep. like relatively heated for this yeah was that you thought that part of the revisionism was basically that anderson was giving him the moral permission to have done it yeah and that that wasn't the case in the original stories and if you go back and read the apocalypse war anderson's right there being like fucking blow him up joe she so, <laughs> is like i went back to reading it and i was like oh fuck i did not remember that at all that's really funny um yeah i well the other thing I want to thread in something that's worth mentioning, and I think worth there's two factors here. So the Trial of Orlock, a two-part story in which Orlock is brought to trial uh, in front of all of Mega City One, all of whom want him to die, and he is uh, Orlock is being a resistant. Um, what with the word I'm like it's a guy who he, he is not he's not playing along with the kangaroo court yeah that way. exactly he insists that he, it is a kangaroo court whether or not it is a kangaroo court is actually in a way I think very well handled by Wagner in that on the one hand um you know a, a junior judge with no experience of formal court proceedings has been um put up as Orlock's uh, attorney, um, but Orlock, by not willing to participate in the trial, undercuts any defense, the defense that uh, is trying to be built by his uh, defender. I forget the judge's name, even though it gets said, Emery. Um, so one thing that's interesting and frustrating is a volume or two back, Emery approaches Dread and more or less says like, hey, I would be, I want to ask you about Orlock. Can you see a whole bunch of contexts and situations in which you would have done the same thing? And Dredd's like, 
the, the, the two aren't even remotely the same. And Emery's who in the course of you see him in his diligence is so diligent about trying to talk to dread and, and, and help build the defense for his client that he ends up getting shot in the line of duty. And is more or less as he's being driven off in the ambulance, he's like, well, I'll see you in court. This is that day <laughs> in court. And one of the things that I think is problematic about it is there is nothing really in this story that was not said by Dredd and Emery in the previous one. So Yeah, and, and there's also nothing really to this story, right? There's right. no it feels very much like an afterthought. There's no twist. There's and also it's called the trial of Orlock, and it's it is the trial, but in the most perfunctory manner. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like I, I feel that Orlock's uh a, a moral judgment shall we say, has actually been brought up before better in other stories. Mm -hmm. This feels very much like almost a recap of, of what we already know. Yes. You know? Ex yeah. Except now it has the punchline of an Orlok is dead at the end of it. Yeah. But that's uh -oh. it. There's like, it's two parts where you don't really learn anything. Yeah. Where you don't really see, at least story doesn't advance until Orlok's death. You know, and honestly, even the part, the, you know, Dreads Capper along the lines of like, Orlok knew he'd never escape, he was trying to goad us into killing him. And yeah. not an injection, but like actually like trying to goad us into killing him in anger. I feel like we've seen that before as well. Like it really does feel like a story where Wagner all of a sudden was like, oh shit, I've got to, I've got to kill off Orlok. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I can do it in two parts. Feels, feels almost rote, which... Mm -hmm feels undeserving of, of the plot, if that makes sense. I think and I and I could be wrong here, it is I I I understand how it reads that way, but I don't think that that is actually what's intended here. Is I think that I think that for a change, Wagner is trying and perhaps and perhaps this does go back to the whole situation of the apocalypse war is I think that and who knows reading so much into the situation. Um, what strikes me about the trial of Orlock is Wagner is trying to perfectly walk the knife's edge, which is to say he is showing everything that is laid out, but he is not, it is, it is, Absolutely, I feel 100% value neutral. Like, it is, if you look at it the right way, or one way, you basically see this entire city screaming for people, this guy's blood. The judges holding a trial that the guy has absolutely no chance of winning, that's stacked against him in every way. Like you said, it... It could be seen as a kangaroo court in which it's blood and circuses, like the instant his guilt is announced, like people are selling souvenirs of the I saw or locked die t-shirts and things. So on the one hand, kind of a heavy commentary about capital punishment, but, and I think this is pretty important, there is not a, the state is explicitly wrong here like everything that mm -hmm. is presented dread is not presented in any kind of hypocritical way in fact you mentioned of course the the 
one of the earlier this is this in a way is the flip side of when dread was put on trial by the remainder of sov city um on the floating city and were, that you and i like you said had the heated discussion where anderson is defending dread and is more or less positioning dread as like he just did what he had to do and in that story also like i wondered the extent to which wagner had intended this to mirror that on the one hand mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but also i think to bring it into a thing of like I want it so that both sides can walk out of this story being like, see, I was right. And I think that, I think that that is something that we're frankly kind of not used to seeing from Wagner. And I think that he felt that it was important for whatever reason to strike that tone. But because he does, he ends up crafting a very, very inert, narrative which like you said i mean this is actually and this is kind of crazy graham if you think about it volume 37 was the first volume in these case files ever i think where i picked it up being like what the hell would a first time reader think of this you know what i mean because i've been chugging along on the casebook treadmill but part of me is like the part of the problem with the trial of Orlock is if you've read all the Orlock stuff, there's nothing new here. And it feels kind of anticlimactic that he just, he, he kind of puts up a fight and he dies in a way that also feels very, um, not so Orlockian, I suppose, compared with some of his previous appearances, I would say. But if you have not, if you're like, Hey, I'm picking up 2000 AD, like, I sure hope there was a really good Nikolai Dante story in this uh, issue sure. for you because th- these would bring you like nothing, you know. And I do have to say, for me, I I am not as huge a fan uh, of Cam Kennedy on Dread as you are, but that's only because you know you're basically the the sumo wrestler of Cam Kennedy Dread fans. <laughs> But I don't think that he's necessarily the best uh, person for this story. I don't think, like, Kennedy is is fun as a caricaturist. He's fun as a caricaturist of things in motion. I thought this story was really a lot of flat gray purples and... I, I Well, I mean, first of all, he's not responsible for the colors. Uh, well, I'm really... But, thank you for... But, <laughs> yes, keep keep going because I look no, forward I, to no, you. Because this, this sounds like I'm going to start a fight. It's it's not meant like that. I, I'm actually asking this seriously. Which other artist in this volume would do a better job? Well, I think John Burns. I mean, I think right off you the think? bat, yeah, I think I think Burns has a really strong eye for faces I, and I, illustrations. I think I think I his think facial Burns... expressions. Yes. Yeah, I I think Burns would be killed by the number of panels on the page. Because this is a busy story. Like, the, you know, there's like eight or nine panels on most of the pages. Oh, you're right. It's one close-up face after another. Wow. How would yeah, you handle that? Yeah, it's it's like I I do think for what Wagner is expecting the artist to do here, mm-hmm. like, Kennedy is kind of – like, I see what you're saying. I, I do understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But I, I 
I don't think there's any other artist in this volume that could they could do as, as good a job with the potential exceptions of Steve Pugh and um, John Higgins. Yeah. Pugh, Higgins, I, I, you and I disagree but, about Burns. Fair enough. You know, no, but I, again, I think Burns would be hamstrung by the amount of information that's expected to be in each page. Hmm. And honestly, I think that uh, the same might be true of Pugh. Hmm. I think both of them are really, I mean, both of them are incredibly good stylists. Mm-hmm. Both of them are, are, you know, do beautiful painted artwork. But I also think they need more space than this script gives them. This well, is a wordy, wordy, wordy script. And again, there's like eight or nine panels in most pages. Yeah. Like the art is the art is doing simultaneously a lot of work and almost nothing because <laughs> there's so much going on in each page. I, I think it would be rough for any artist, but I I and maybe that's it. Maybe it's just a piece that would, no artist would really be sold super easily on. Because you're right, looking at it, it's like it's practically two pieces jammed into three. Also, looking at it, it's very it's a very deliberate schism, I would say, between parts one and two in terms of the second part, which I'm assuming picks up with Orlock's execution itself there's almost no words on the page you know what i mean like the after all the trial sequences it's it seems very deliberately put with a relatively few amount of words on the page um so uh, i'm i'm literally looking at the, the stories two parts the break in chapters is on page 11 um mm. as as it's numbered where oh, okay. The, the breaking chapters is Emery saying, as far as I can see, it's already dug. I'm trying to get him out of it. <clears throat> oh, really? That's the end of part one. And mm-hmm. part two starts with uh, the the uh, Emery on the screen. Oh, okay. All right. Then, yeah. Then I, I am entirely wrong, which makes sense because that final execution sequence is... That final execution sequence is just like three pages, yeah. Do you think that it might have been actually written as two or three parts and they decided to jam it? Even I I tighter. wondered that because it is like it's a weirdly busy script for Wagner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like there there's a again there's a lot of panels on the page. There's a lot of dialogue on a page, yeah. and and both of those are not Wagner's hallmarks at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that the, they seem very unlike him. Yeah. Um. And again, the story seems just very oddly paced mm-hmm. in that it's very busy and also nothing happens in it. Yeah, yeah, you know, Um, so it could be very much, you know, this was originally four parts and they were like, "Uh, okay, but nothing actually happens here, John. Yeah, so like you're just capping everything. Can we get it down to two parts? And he's like, yep, just like literally like pages one and two. That's no page one. Page three, four, that's no page two. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, okay, so I guess we can say. It didn't work for either of us, but you, once again, are coming in and smothering me uh, to death under the weight of your Cam Kennedy love, which is which is fair. I'm used to it. I, I, think, I think that's a fair sum up. Like, I think yeah. Trial of Orlok is – and again, it's such a shame. Orlok, I think, is, is a very good character. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, it, and it's a really important character, like, for dreads as a strip. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to see him basically get sent off in – what honestly is such a disappointing story is is kind of feels like a waste you, you know? know it's one of those things where um 
and I, I am in no way saying that this happened because I'm almost certain that it didn't. But you know how, like, sometimes you read about stories and you're like, oh, you read a story and you're like, oh, that seems kind of weird. And then afterwards you find out like, oh, Chris Claremont was insistent that, you know, Marvel kept wanting to expand the X-Men universe and he would only do that. Like he, he couldn't really fight it. So he kept volunteering to write everything with the hopes of keeping sort of control over everything. And so like you kind of feel like the, for me, like I'm sure this wasn't happening where someone was like, Oh, Hey, by the way, John, like we talked to Alan Grant and he's got a really great idea where basically Anderson's going to marry Orlock. It's going to be like the true love that gets united. And it's going to be like a big event for us. <laughs> and Wagner's like, uh-huh. Great. Hey, I, I gotta go. I got a script. I got to finish up. You know what I mean? Like that's uh, what's funny is, you know, that Orlock shows up in Anderson for a while, right? The only reason why I know why is, I think, again, because of the Floating City trial, where it's shown that they have history, that they... Yeah, they they do have, as far as I remember, like, you know, Starcross lover vibes. Right. I don't think it's ever explicitly stated like that, but it it is like, you know, we have a connection. And we saw that when he came into the city and he kidnapped her, and he's like, I, you, you and I understand each other, Anderson, for the trial. So it's, it's funny, it's like... I one hundred percent believe that right? Grunt might be like, oh wait, where's Harlock these days? Oh, I've got a great story. Yeah, it's I'm gonna be just great. Like, Fucking kill him. Yeah, exactly. Ixnay on the Orlock A. So yeah. yeah I, I killed him, sorry everyone. <laughs> Boy, that was fast. Yeah, yeah. Um so... Okay, so so the other two stories I I mentioned that you were like I don't think they feel as slight as you do. Revenge of the Chief Judge's Man with the aforementioned John Burns on art. Yeah. And the Satanist with Charlie Adlard on art. Okay. So I think the Satanist, you are on stronger ground um, because it is a story ostensibly following up on um, Dredd's niece, who we have. What's is it? Vera? Nina? Nina Vera? Vienna. Thank you. I'm, it it, was, it yeah. is Vienna. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm sure you're right. I just, I'm like, it's pretty funny that I somehow carved it up. You're like, starts Vera. V. Vera. Well, I said Vera and Nina. And I'm like, Vienna is kind of sort of if you, you know, I mean, give me a break. Uh, admittedly, I'm, 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 I'm well into my dotage, Graham. And I'm, I'm speeding up all the time. Um, Vienna dreads niece who disappeared uh off screen so to speak for you know about 15 to 18 years and then shows up to more or less say like hey you never did anything to come after me you never did anything with me you you just i'm i i'm like a non-entity to you and he's like no that's not true i have feelings, Vienna. I I am so sorry. Anyway, the Satanist is kind of a <laughs> follow up sorry. where no, that's fine. You feel free to let me no, get through no, this. No, I'm, I'm laughing just mockery. because this. Well, no, but the story was almost the opposite of that, right? Was and it? He's like, no. Well, in that he's like, no, I have feelings, but then he's literally like, but I'd rather go on patrol than talk to you. And well, then yeah. she leaves, and he's more or less like, yep, well. Fucked up, went up, but you know it was it was almost like the illustration was almost. Oh, that's know. true. Yeah, yeah. No, no, if no. Dread no, no, no. does have feelings. They're they're buried so deep down that he would much rather deal with the regret of disappointing her. Oh, which you know, let's be honest, he's probably not even feeling. Than 
nice that's funny because i really feel like i thought from our discussion it was kind of the idea that both wagner and dread have a certain degree of remorse over the idea that this person was kind of not a part of dread's life and texture and kind of as a lost opportunity but eh, what are you going to do and so the satanist is a fun for me it's a sort of throwback to the the Wagner and Grant days of like what was the late night movie on BBC four <laughs> you know and so and so the Satanist is kind of a throwback to the days of you know early 70s satanic mindfuck films you know where it's it's I mean, this is about as distant from the Wicker Man as you can get and still have, you know, enough genes to show up on the 23andMe test. But you basically have uptight lawmen burses the occult and the occult is going to fuck pretty heavily with him. Um, and on the one hand, I'm such a I'm such a sucker for that specific genre I adore it. And so seeing it done with dread, it was, it was kind of a pretty good fit for the most part. I think the problem is, is that among other things, it's a story in which Vienna is literally just 100% a plot device. And I think, yes, yes. Vienna is, is basically not in this story. Right. And so as a previous, um, it, the, the last time we saw her was kind of a story that was centered entirely around a, hey, look at me, I could have been a person in your life, and and I don't count for anything, and him being like, mm, uh, mm, uh, can't process feelings. And then for Wagner to follow it up, being like, oh, man, you know what I saw the other night? The Satanic Rites of Dracula, and it was fucking fab got to do something with that dread versus the occult because once you let me tell you the best match between the occult is you know a lawman with a stick up his ass like it's the best <laughs> well it's you know you say the recommend i honestly got strong dracula 8072 vibes from it right especially because and i might be misremembering isn't it van helsing's niece in those or is it Van in 1972, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think it might be his granddaughter because I don't. I mean, that's the thing with Dracula in 1972. They crib it. I think, I think uh, Peter Cushing's playing his own grandson, and then that's yeah, his that's, daughter. I, I'm trying. I think yeah, that's. Trying, I think that's I'm looking it. it up now. Yeah, please so do. Curious. Yeah, no, no. Dracula 90, uh, Dracula 1972 AD, which I adore. Jessica Van Helsing is the granddaughter of Van Helsing. Okay, and she is the daughter of van helsing uh, yeah the the van helsing the current the current day van helsing, van yeah, helsing. The, i always i do miss when movies are like that is like here i am the son of this person who remarkably i resemble in every particular yeah, except i'm me. yeah except i'm four years older than the last time you saw them uh yeah so um, yeah yeah but but it's it like i got strong vibes of that right especially mm -hmm. because you know, for a quote-unquote satanic story, uh, it is, it's pulpy as shit, right? Right. It, it's, it's very much, it is a hammer horror construct right. of, of Satanism and, and of the cult. Yeah. 
you can't imagine the, the, the you know the hammer score the, the shitty camera work mm-hmm. that's in there especially when you get like the villains saying things like we've made the grandmaster angry he means to destroy us while right flying around the room right you know? exactly or or particularly one of the things that's great we talk about how busy the sequence of the trial of orlock is there's a whole sequence where dread comes into the room and into Vienna's bedroom or I guess or, or Conapt or whatever and everything oh, and there's like is two pages of him silently going through the apartment basically. Yes, and then the slow build hit someone's in the shower and he's calling for her and no one's replying and there's a figure in there and he whips out a gun and and then it's the vengeful spirit. You know, it's like it's it's just a fucking jump scare. It's and on on paper. So so yeah, I mean, how do I put it? Like for me, it's all maybe because it's played out at length, and I, I think you can arguably say it's a pretty slight piece, especially because, um, how do I put it? Like what one of the things I like about it is, is I feel that that Wagner is doing a certain amount and, and arguably with the trial of Orlock as well, a little bit of underwriting for him, or rather maybe it's the same level of sort of underwriting characterization that he was, he and Grant were throwing down that you were picking up in earlier volumes. And it's just now gotten clumsy or subtle enough that it can it be detected on the Jeff radar. But there's a lot of things that's really fun with how a how much dread is uh for for lack of a better term he I guess he he is uh, protesting too much you know there's a lot of times where he's like they keep trying to make me feel guilty someone's making me feel guilty they're doing a guilt trip on me well they certainly think that worked you know and there's a few points where where you're like oh yeah maybe. Maybe Dredd is guilty about it. And here's one of the things that I think is also fun is you you mentioned uh, Dracula in 1972 AD. Part of the reason why I, of course, mentioned the Wicker Man is because um, Stick Up the Butt Lawman has some really fucked up attitudes about sex in the Wicker Man. Dread is, and I and I think that if 2000 AD uh, and Michael Mulcher want to actually... Um, push this as a marketing angle, but I, I think that up until now, you could say that Judge Dredd is the world's biggest and most successful ace or asexual character that has ever existed, like in comics, right? There's a there's a panel where he's at the orgy club, um, you know, which is called the orgy club, which yes. I love. I do like love that. Walks under a sign that literally just says "Orgy Club." <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's great. I mean, and it's everything you want from that scene, where like the oily Satanist uh, is like, "Oh, Judge Dredd, please come and join us in the orgy," you know, and which is great. Like, uh, and, and, and he actually says, "Orgies aren't my style." Let's you have a word without yes. the rah group. Right? Which, on the one hand, great, but on the other hand, I, there's definitely an area of like nothing's dread style. You know what I mean? When he's like, orgies aren't my style is actually a really fun, you know, it's the sort of thing that like the hard boiled detective or cop says in the hammer movie. And you're like, Oh yeah, sure. But you know, he's going to be making out with a topless Barbara Steele before the fourth commercial break or whatever, you know, but 
unless you're in the case of the Wicker Man, in which case you're, you know, weeping while Brett Summers, Brett, Brett Eklund, Brett Summers from Match Game, uh, Brett Eklund is like, you know, bouncing her tatas against your locked bedroom door uh, while singing a seductive song. Like, all of which is say, A, dread, asexual, B, it's probably well that he is because there is definitely, and by definitely, I mean you're going to say that I'm reading too much into this, the idea that Dredd has stayed away from Vienna because he's sexually attracted to her. Which, again, you'll never actually see that, but it is amazing. Again, it sort of goes with the Satanist territory. The whole thing where <laughs> the Satanist, after they've knocked Dredd out, is like Vienna prepare him or no tend to him there's a whole thing about tending to him and then of course she's in there like and then of course she's making out with the satanist in front of dread who's been like sort of like once he's stripped of his gear like you know he's kind of in like old man pjs when she take off all the belts and epaulets and everything just that black jumpsuit kind of hanging sexlessly on him i was kind of like huh yeah, I gotta admit, I usually don't think of sex and dread in the same sentence, and you know, because I'm not Chloe Maviel, but I'm really glad that I don't. But I kind of feel like I am here, and I'm not looking forward to discussing it and having Graham call me a perv. So, Graham, your thoughts? I'm, the only thing I'm going to call you a perv about is your idea that you think dread is attracted to Vienna. That oh yeah, no, he's not. He's not because again, dread's asexual. Dread's an ace. He has no sexual attraction. To anyone, um, except the law, and I and I. But but I that. but I will say, and, and this is not. This ties in with something else you're saying. Mm-hmm. When Dread and Vienna meet again, you actually do get an implication that like, Dread feels more for Vienna than he was aware. Yeah. Right, because it's when he sees her and she's brainwashed, and she's essentially like, you know, I am preparing you for the spell where the Lord Satan will steal your soul. Right. He isn't. He doesn't have the same response to her that he does to like the other Satanists, right? Mm-hmm. He seems almost panicked by her behavior. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like he he seems he seems upset for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. That I think is 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 nice foreshadowing. Uh, you know, as as you know, as you were put, putting it, like it is Wagner being like, okay, there's something more going on here. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not like. I'm not going to say it. He's never going to say it. I'm never going to have Dredd say it. But Dredd clearly, after convincing himself or, or trying to convince himself, that he would much rather, like, avoid family entirely. And that's something that's shown up in different stories, right? It's shown up in, in like, thing when Kraken showed up. thing when Rico showed up. Yeah. But, which, I mean, clone Rico is supposed to, like, Rico brother. But Dredd has, Dredd has issues around family. <laughs> you know, understandably for two reasons. One, he was brainwashed by the... the Academy of Law, and two, he kills his brother. Yeah, right. Oh, for that matter, like his dad is Fargo, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who, who he and other people lionize and then treat as if they're a god. Yes, and I absolutely agree with that. But I also do agree that, that if you had had a sequence where, let's say, that this was, uh, is is is. Rico, the clone of Rico, going by Rico these days. I Rico is the clone of Rico is the clone of Dread, and he's going by Rico. He is going by Rico. Okay, Rico Dread. Yeah. So, like, 
if Rico had been kidnapped by Satanists, you know what I mean? And you had a scene with um, Dredd walking through a steamy bathroom with a shower going, like it would have a very, it would have a very different feel, Graham, admit it. Yeah, but yeah, no, sure. But also, you know, you wouldn't see, like if Dredd is chained up in the dungeon and Rico is the one covering his hilariously helmet with blood. They don't yeah. take off the helmet, which is my favorite part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with the helmet on, and I paint the helmet, which is just really funny to me. But if that was Rico, I don't think Dredd would react in the same way. Right? Well, no, I, of I course think, not. Yeah. You know, and I think, that, I think that's the important part. Much right. more than, like, he walks in and the shower's going. Like, I, I, I do think you're ascribing motive to dread that should more likely be ascribed to Wagner, if that makes sense. Oh, I... Like, I, I think I think yeah. Wagner's just like, you know, someone in the shower, hey! And, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't... Like, I think Dredd is literally just like, I hear a noise, it's in the bathroom, there's someone in the shower, I'll open the shower door. And it's completely a matter of fact. Well... I think Wagner's one being like, waka, waka, waka. Well, I, I, I will split the difference with you. In that I don't think that Wagner is necessarily really intending that or seriously intending that. It is so baked into the tropes that Wagner is playing with, is leaning into yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> that it makes sense. Like, you got to have those sequences. Like, those, those sequences. Like you said, the Hammer stuff has a... Um, like, the Hammer stuff has like a sexploitation thing baked into it. Exactly, exactly. And so you've got to play into that. There's always the Hammer, half of the Hammer horror movie appeal is like, you might see boobs at any minute. And that, and and they are forbidden boobs. You know what I mean? Like one of the great things I would argue about the Hammer movies is the way in which the forbiddenness of seeing boobs on screen plays into the forbiddenness of the occult stuff. So they they intermingle that sort of uh, expectation and dread, like, together. You know what I mean? Like, it literally is occult. It's liter- it literally was forbidden in movies up to mm-hmm, that point. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, mm-hmm. hey, guys, tatas. And so, be, you know, so yeah, it's, that stuff is baked into it. And again, I think, I think Wagner is playing with that he's just like you said he's just leaning into the tropes but unfortunately i think that those tropes do end up pointing a little bit to the idea that that um taken this story taken on its own you would think either dread's got some lady issues which honestly he doesn't um or that he's got some very specific seeing my niece naked issues so which again he doesn't, but it's really yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, it's really hard not to read the story and and kind of filter that out. I sort of feel like if you don't know the elements at play, it's it kind of looks like it, you know, that that dreads a little worried about uh, popping a nightstick. Uh, oh, <laughs> um, I, I but okay, getting back to to getting back to my original complaint, Jeff. Um, I do think this story is it ultimately ends up being lighter than the its page count. If that makes mm. sense, mm. I, I've I've and it doesn't necessarily feel like there's filler happening. Mm-hmm. It's just that by the time it's over, you're like, wow. So 
you know, that was a good 60-odd pages for, you know, a hammer riff and little else. I, I, you know, I mean? you know right. I, I, like, I, like if, if you don't dig the hammer riff. Right. Or if you think that, like, there, there isn't enough material in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that by the end of it, you're like, huh, okay. Like, that was, that was fine. Yeah. But, yeah. And part of it is also... I think on some level I might also be mad at it or disappointed in it because it comes so close to doing something with Vienna and doesn't. Oh yeah, it right? really doesn't. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. like you you get you get kind of dread side of it in the by the end of it I think that you know at least the reader knows that dread has emotions there even if mm-hmm. dread isn't ready to, to deal with it. Right. But but again, you only see Fiona when she's brainwashed. Well, and I, I think there's actually you know I mean? a really, I mean, you only see Vienna when she's brainwashed. And... Or at the very end when she's been brainwashed in an opposite direction. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and both of those things are a little bit worrisome. And, I, you know, I mean, this is written in 2003. The Hammer movies are much older and in, there is something yeah, that the even like be... 30 years before right so i i mean you could tell a story that would be arguably have a little more depth and is a little more meaningful if you were looking at it like dreads looking into vienna's life and what he's kind of finding is is the fact that her not having any kind of family kind of fucked her up like there's no there, – it's all pretty light about um, – and, and dodges the issue in a way that we'll never know how much Vienna might have really been into this lifestyle and how much she was really tricked. You know, you could go a little bit more to choose choose something a little more dire if you had gone just a smidge more uh, in the direction of Paul Schrader's hardcore – where George C. Scott is investing his uh, his daughter's disappearance into the world of porn, and and having to deal with his rage and anger, but also the way in which he he his absence helped create that. You know what I mean? And again, mm-hmm. it's fine. It's it's almost kind of how do I put it? It's like I think I think by keeping his foot off the accelerator, you kind of get a, a little story that just kind of idles through its, its pulpy pastiche. And if you're like me and you like the pulpy pastiche, it's fine. If you wanted something more, there's a lot of ways that Wagner could have gone to. And, and yeah. And he, and he sort of, you know, purposefully avoids. It's not even that he accidentally avoids. It feels like he purposely avoids it. That said, like the final panel of this is like it's weirdly compelling is maybe a bit strong mm-hmm. but the caption at the end feels uh almost feels like the start of the story is supposed to end of the story if that makes sense mm-hmm. uh it ends with the, with the caption saying when her memory returned when she remembered everything he'd done maybe then she wouldn't want to know him anymore that would be her choice until then he would do his duty by her a man could do no more right because because dread is now taking her back to Mega City 1. Mm-hmm. We should say all of this takes place in Britain. There is the story that takes place in Britain. When yep. we're ma- referencing Britain horror films, that's like very, a very intentional call on Wagner's part. Yep. Like Vienna has gone to Britain 
and yeah. Dread goes to Britain to find her. Um, and story ends with Dread bringing her back to Mega City One and essentially saying, "Like I'm going to take care of you. Right. Like I, I, I'm going to be responsible for you." And then you get that caption, you get that that closing narration, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Again, it feels like the start of something, not the end of something. And and you know, given that again, the story has run seven chapters to get here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you know, I I want more of this. Why did you give me like you know? Dread shouting at a fat bald man who was just screaming about the Grandmaster when I could have had this. Yeah. Well, because I think, again, because... But again, you're... like, you know, Wagner's continuing on with Dread. Like, he has he has all this more space to play with it. It's well, just, it is just, it feels like a really unbalanced story to me. And it feels, of course. Again, it feels very slight and that Wagner is intentionally avoiding the emotional depth in favor of something that is... That is at once really pulpy and yet done in such a slow manner that almost robs the pulp of it. Like, mm-hmm. I think if this was, I honestly think if this was like four parts instead of seven mm-hmm. and it just moved faster, I would be much more of a fan of it. Well, I think, I think one could argue that in that case, it really wouldn't be a, a genuine tribute to the Hammer movies. Uh, <laughs> I, I also. No, I mean, like, like, fair point. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, and I do think I do I do kind of think that. And similarly, I think one of the things that's hard with that last panel is, like you said, it feels like the starting to you, and it's because of that lack of balance. It really is supposed to be the emotional closure of someone who has come to terms with the idea of like, yeah, he was not here for this person, and that's why they fell into all this shit. But they're there now. Like, it's kind of a classic movie, like, don, don, don. Like, it's even framed like a kind of classic closing image with, like, a, you know, superimposed montage of close-up of Dread and the the shot of him looking over her. You know, you practically see the fin or the end rising up above those. It's just, but it's, it really is not earned. And part of that is, I think, we, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about how we thought that, that. Uh, Incubus was a very satisfying um, Dread story and a very satisfying Alien story, which some people in our comments uh, disagreed with, interestingly enough. Uh, And I I would argue that part of the problem with The Satanist is it, because it is a Hammer movie with Dread in it, it ends up being neither a satisfying Dread story nor a satisfying Hammer movie. You know what I mean? Because... Because you never, you're not really going to get. Dread's never going to really lose his shit. Like that's just kind of not what Dread does. You know what I mean? And so, consequently, there is no real. Uh, Wagner underplays the extent to which Dread might actually feel. Um, guilty and responsible for Vienna's situation here. And that final panel works if it is something that the reader has really felt like is the case with dread. You know what I mean? So I I think, I think that that is, could be part of the problem. Um, But for me, as someone who 
again, very much likes this kind of thing, I'm like, yeah, it was, it was fine. I mean, and that's it. There's a lot in this volume when you and I talked and you were kind of like, I don't know about this. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's basically pretty fine. Like this volume leans pretty heavily on pastiche altogether. We haven't even really Mm -hmm. talked about Gordon Rennie's stuff. And most of that pastiche is, stuff that I really enjoy that I feel is mostly done pretty well. Not fucking fantastically, but, you know, so to bring us to the trifecta... Oh, yeah. Hmm? Yes? I was going to to agree with you, but I was going to say, like, I think that's true of this volume. Like, you know, Drock or Dross? This volume is, like, Drocks? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's fine. It's... it's, Mm -hmm. it, It does the job. It's just it doesn't do the job with any particular style. Or for that matter, with any particular excitement for me. Well, like, where is... It, it ticks the boxes, but... Right. Whereas I think it is a cut above tick the boxes. And maybe that's just because I like a little bit of the stuff that they are... They're referencing, yeah. Yeah, you know? Like, yeah. I like I think that... I think that the Satanist may not necessarily get go as far as you would want for either a dread story particularly a, in terms of maybe his characterization with Vienna or something like that but in terms of like you know do you see dread like tied up and covered in blood where there's an occult sacrifice and you're pretty sure half the people dancing around him are people that you know were telling him one thing or the other earlier throughout the story i'm like hell yeah and i'm into it you know it like once you have an old nude lady crumble into dust and bugs in the shower in front of you i'm like yeah okay that you know that works for me similarly the chief judge's man um you know when it was going on uh, and you have and for those, I suppose, because they're God knows I'm trying to be better about this or at least better this episode. The Chief Judge's Man, the the finale. I don't know. Does it is it called? No, anything I'm, I'm, I'm fair. I think it's called Revenge of the Chief Judge's Man. Right, exactly. Uh, is the finale of? I guess was it a triptych? I suppose. Like, is it not just a trilogy? Well, is it not I, the Chief Judge's Man, Return of the Chief Judge's Man, Revenge of the Chief Judge's Man? Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's basically three parts. In in the first part, several volumes back, uh, the Chief Judge's Man is um, a, a a appears to be a secret black ops member that Judge Hershey, the Chief Judge, has recruited specifically to kill off. Um, democratic leaders of of the pro-democracy uh movement and he's essentially a political assassin supporting the the justice department exactly the the end of the story is more or less that you find out that um he's still active out there but it is not it is not hershey that is um that has has activated him it is uh the clerk a, a senior judge within the department very close to Hershey who thanks to the miracle of technology uh, is appearing as her uh, via yeah. tech and, and that's important the chief judge's man believes he is actually working for the chief judge yeah like it's not just that he pretends he is or other people think he's he specifically thinks that he is doing the right thing and that he has been personally selected by the chief judge yeah and so 
the second part, the return of the chief judge's man has uh, the chief judge's man come out and what, what's his name? What's the guy? Gil. Gil is uh, caught and more uh, is sent away to a Kirster's uh, correction facility. But the twist, as you see him, uh, essentially the the whole judge's service and particularly dread play a game of cat and mouse and finally manage to catch their mouse. Uh, the the twist reveal, just as the first uh, story had the twist that de- it's de Klerk, not Hershey, and it is someone within the judge's department that is uh, has activated him, but not not necessarily who you think. The twist in the second story is is that de Klerk has actually set all this up so that Gil can go to the Kirsters correction facility and kill uh, de Klerk's first chief judge's man um, when he was still putting the plan together and did things a little more difficult uh, with with a little less finesse and a little more carelessly. So the return of both of, of the chief judge's man stories end up with de Klerk more or less succeeding and triumphing in a way that the judges have no idea about and, and frankly, in ways that pull the rug out from under the reader. And that brings us to Revenge of the Chief Judge's Man, where uh, Dread delivering prisoners to the Cursed Earth Correction Facility, where Gil is, and is also, in a very satisfying way, run by Judge Edgar, uh, a former nemesis of Dread uh, in previous stories, who was caught and um, for uh, more or less consigned to uh, the prison as a form of punishment and stripping. Yeah, she's basically been exiled to the prison. Yeah. um, You get to see her return as well. And uh, essentially the first part of the story has Dread talking to Edgar and more or less asking her for help. Edgar, of course, being both um, sneeringly dismissive and then fascinated by the the puzzle and the problem being laid forward from her. And you see Gil, who is finally at his breaking point, independently from any other time in the, the previous two stories, you finally see him acting of his own volition and that volition is vengeance. He has sworn vengeance on the chief judge that he feels has abandoned him and uh, let, forget, although promised that she would, and by she protect would him. Clerk, yeah. protect him and return for him, and he has realized is being left to die. He goes to take revenge on her, not knowing that he is in fact uh, trying to take vengeance upon the wrong person. Um now, one thing I have to say that I do not remember that is played to great extent here is Gil is a genetically engineered soldier, which I feel is something that Wagner threw into part two. I don't feel like it's thrown into as much as part one. Here, he is basically an unstoppable half cockroach, half mountain lion, all killer who very satisfyingly, <laughs> yeah, who, once who is, he gets away... Yeah, once he yeah. gets away, he can do anything. 
Exactly. Like he, he is he is an unstoppable killing machine once he gets out of the prison. In fact, even him getting out of the prison is is basically like, and he has superpowers. To be right. fair, I think, and I might be misremembering myself. I think they make a point of it of pointing out in the first story. Do they? Okay. Yeah. I, that I, was one of the reasons he was selected. Yeah. Was because um, he, had, he was genetically modified. But again, this is the first time that basically we've seen him be Superman. Yeah. Like, I feel like there was a few points where he and Dredd are... Um, Dredd's in pursuit of him, and you see him do some pretty amazing j- jumps and leaps. But Dredd's able to kick the snot out of him. And it's not until later that you re- you learn that Gil has let himself be captured. And so in this um, thing, in this story, uh, as Gil's escaping and being very, very superhuman and fucking up all the judges, you get a showdown between him and Dredd, and it's everything that I would want from this sort of sequence, which is to say um, Gil just kicks the shit out of Dredd um, and, and literally hangs him out to dry and runs off to to take vengeance um so it's a i mean you know if you sort of want to see judge dread versus cockroach jason Bourne, like it's um it's very enjoyable for that and i enjoyed it and john burns does to me just beautiful art that carries an extra level of paranoia that this story is supposed to contain because as Gil gets out the clerk is still in the office is hiding there. And he tries to take, you know, basically lure Gil in so that he can wrap up the loose end, which ends in the, again, that sort of parallax view, classic seventies thriller thing, you know, somebody with a sniper rifle opening fire in a plaza with lots of innocents getting killed. It's, you know, everything that you want. The noose tightens in onto clerk, even as he tries to shut down Gil. Gil, of course, gets closer and closer to Hershey as Dredd tries to track them both down. And, and this is the thing that I can get, Graham. It feels incredibly minor because the only real twist that it happens at the end of the story is kind of a deus ex machina to that literal not only is followed up with a deus ex machina but you actually get a uh critica ex machina where one of the robots goes she was only a robot what a letdown which i yeah have to admit, it, i mean I wagner laughed. pulls wagner yeah. pulls the um like model decoy mm-hmm. gag yeah whereas you see her she get killed the chief judge's man kills Hershey. And then yeah. like a page later, they're like, it was a robot. Yeah. Funny story, you guys. Yeah. It was a robot. Uh, and you do, you get this robot complaining that she was a robot, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I don't know. Again, there, there's, it feels like there's a story that has emphasis on things that feel incredibly unimportant. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's just interesting. I, you know, the, the, Gil's escape, with the exception of his showdown with Dread, mm-hmm. feels like it takes too long. When all it's really like is like he's fucking climbed a mountain. Boo! Oh shit! Oh, he's... Boo! No, Graham! Boo! I disagree. 
but yeah, I see your point. Really? Like, you're all for, like, the hunt? You're all for the Texas City thing? Oh, totally, man! It's fucking Rambo vs. Blood shit! Where it's like, they're like, they're trying to find him, and even the, like... The, it's over the top, but the whole like, oh, you even have the flashback to him being able to lower his body temperature to zero so that when they walk into the sheds or whatever they call it, the ruins. Yeah, it, you... it's it's too much for me, man. It really is. Mm, nope. Um, no, no, I, I, no. It's, it feels uh, – it also feels a very scattered story. I feel like the Edgar stuff doesn't really merge with, uh, with the Chief Judge's man plot. Mm-hmm. Like I, I see how they interrelate, but they don't feel like they sit together well. Honestly, I think the declerc, the resolution of the declerc side of things, is kind of bullshit as well. To be perfectly yes, honest, yes, no, and that's the part where I do agree with you. Like as much as I enjoy the juice in it, and I get that you don't enjoy it, and I can understand if you don't enjoy it. Like it was only when rereading it, I'm like. Oh, there's no sizzle on this steak, you know. Like, well, I mean, it, it, like, but they kind of find out that it's him really quickly and really easily after two earlier stories where no one had any idea. Right? Do you know what I mean? It's like Edgar's like, mm, maybe it's this guy, and then you know, five pages later, Dred's there with his team of judges, and they're like, it's the clerk, all right. Mm-hmm. Now that we put it all together, it's definitely him. And the clerk's like, mm, they're coming after me. Gotta kill myself and write a confession. Like, really? So, so listeners, um, right now, uh, Humble Bundle is running a an excellent 2000 AD bundle with a whole bunch of Dread stuff in it. And one of those pieces is the Chief Judge's Man as a collected trade. Oh, is it? Yeah. And so I actually ran out of time uh, today before recording, and I apologize for that. But I was actually going to um, download and because uh, I own it um, and read the tr- read it all as a winner, as as my co-host would say, and see how it holds up, because part of me wonders if as as one story altogether, um if it actually does hold up because the sort of twist, twist, he's caught and then killed kind of thing works better in a one But here, mm-hmm. one of the things that is really hard is it's just so fucking perfunctory. You know, it's kind of like, again, like the thing with Orlock, there is nothing new in this story that you didn't know or learn from the previous chief judge's story. Like each of the chief judge's stories, you know that it's de Klerk. And in all of those, de Klerk has been super good at hiding his tracks. Here he's not. And I would argue that part of that is because Wagner has, in part kind of with the whole thing with manners, sort of pointed out that part of the reason why bad judges are able to exist in the system is that the judges never look for them. And so consequently, it's not that they are such amazing, you know, masterminds of genius in disguise. It's just that nobody really knows how to look for them because the judges really don't know how to distrust one another, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Which... Uh, and 
So, in theory, part of me kind of half suspects that if you read it as a wonder, it's it's potentially really enjoyable. Um, but on its own, which is the way that I think is fair to judge it, especially in this context, and especially because I haven't read it and could well be wrong as a wonder, um, it is it is disappointing here. It is kind of like the Trial of Orlock, kind of fait accompli. You get a feeling of... Um, Wagner crossing another item off his to-do list. And for me, in a way that's filled with all sorts of um, exciting days from some of my favorite uh, genre periods, but I admit that that is sometimes you want a little bit more than, you know, shout-outs and some really lovely John Burns art. But this <laughs> particular month, I didn't. So it, it all kind of worked for me. Where do you want to go from here? Do you want to talk about some of their Gordon Rennie stuff? Do you want to talk about like the Ennis story, which I, I think that you yeah, at I, least I... enjoyed the art for? <laughs> you didn't necessarily enjoy the writing for? Well, let me tell right. you, the, the, the last thing I do want to say about this story before we move off, and I apologize because I know you're like, eh, it was minor and slight, is... No, I, I, here's the thing. In terms of page count, it's actually a chunk of this, of this volume. Right. So, I, you know, it's not minor in that respect. It's just that I think I liked The Satanist. And honestly, like Trial of Urlock, which is infinitely shorter. Trial of Urlock's like 12 pages. Right. Um, they all feel they feel more minor mm-hmm. uh, and more disappointed because of that. And because they do take up so much, uh, so many pages. Right. Sorry. That's what I mean. Minor and slight emotionally, not worthy of the page count that's allotted it. And also, Graham. I'm sorry, listeners. There's a sequence. This wasn't what I was going to talk about. But there's a sequence where Gil has gotten away. He is frying a lizard on a stick over a fire, Western style. And then a Texas Ranger, you know, basically finds him and holds him at gunpoint. And Gil throws the stick, that with the roasting stick with the lizard on it, kills the Texas Ranger with the lizard still on the stick. And then Gil pulls out the stick and eats the lizard. And I'm sorry. There, There is You're no like, way. You're like, that's a man. That, that is, I was just like, it. there are two options and only two options. One, that is from a spaghetti western that I have not seen yet. And 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 which case, good job, John Wagner, for ripping off some quality spaghetti western bit of over-the-top nastiness. Or Two, holy shit, how has that never been ended up in a cheesy spaghetti western? Because I love that. Oh, my God. It's, uh. But what I actually wanted to say, Graham, is that although I feel that there are other stories, clearly, where Wagner does this better, I feel that this story was the one where I sort of realized how much Wagner has worked his narration into a superpower because there are he uses i guess a third person over the Mm -hmm. shoulder omniscient narration that is incredibly successful i'm used to seeing it being in dread's pensive stories and it works well for creating that sense of melancholy 
distance where yes. dread is thinking about himself and the narrator is explaining what the what dread is thinking but so it's like he thinks back to better days is such a classic sort of wagner narrative phrase here one of the things that and so in my brain i'm used to thinking of it as quote unquote wagner's dread voice like when wagner is narrating stories using that voice i'm used to thinking of it as dread's voice but going back and rereading it it really does keep its own third person flavor but adopts the viewpoint of each of the 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 character whichever character it's in the heads of so sometimes that's dread sometimes that's gill there's one point where it's de clerk there's a great shot where i'm like i i can't remember if it was actually supposed to be um dread or judge what's her name judge bald lady but uh but it was edgar but it was it was a really well done little bit of oh yeah yeah still bristling over her demotion head of pcu to warden of a cursed earth work farm but the problem had pricked her interest and i i i love how that i thought was dread and in fact the next caption is same old edgar still playing it close to her chest and that's clearly dread but the other the other caption where it's both dread and edgar edgar it's it's probably actually really edgar and i was i was like Oh wow! Like you are, you have have uh, made affirmations about this in, in the sense of this is clearly something that you have twigged to much much earlier. And I was sort of aware in a general sense, but this story in particular made me aware: a what a versatile tool it is with Wagner, and also how different it is than the way that comic book writers are using captions in two thousand three. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I, to be, to yeah. be fair to you, or mm-hmm. or give more context for me, like I'm much more aware of it because I really became aware of it in later work. Like mm-hmm. Day of Chaos, I think uses that tool really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when, like you know, when I saw it in the earlier case files, I was like, oh shit, he's doing it here. He's doing it this early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but I. I I recognized it as a tool because of later work where he's, mm. I would argue, even better at it. And uses Which, it to a yeah. greater extent. Right, right. Which is encouraging to hear and also very exciting to hear. Like, that's something that I, I really will enjoy seeing develop. But it is the kind of, for all the props that we give Wagner, and let's face it, I feel like, you know, A, he's earned them all, but it's it's us like lauding the guy a lot over the course of our 30 plus episodes. It was kind of exciting for me to realize like, Oh man, like he's got some other shit that is like, I'm just finally, you know, thousands of pages in seeing this particular tool and understanding how it works and how, how flexible it is and how well suited it is not just to the stories that Wagner's telling, but to the comics medium. Uh, and um, it'd be very interesting to me. I suppose that might be a good segue to talk about Gordon Rennie's showing in this volume. Um, 
because I don't think it was the previous volume. Was it the previous volume or the volume before where we were like, hey, Rennie, who knew? He's kind of getting, you know, moving into Wagner on his off day. In a, in, yeah, it, it, was, a it was the previous compliment. volume where we were like, Rennie's, Rennie's got it. Like, he's, yeah. he's worked out. He's worked out. He, again, it was, like you said, Wagner on his off day. You yeah. know, he's not top level Wagner yet. But mm -hmm. he's definitely, he seems to have worked out something about the DNA of Dread that other writers hadn't worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel that not all of his stories are winners here. Um, there was at least one that I thought was Wagner uh, again and was like, oh shit, that's, that was actually, that was actually Rennie. Um Although, uh, let's see if I can remember what that was. But at the same time, I also had a certain... There were a couple of swings and a miss uh, on here. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. You know. I, I, I think that there's more misses here. That said, like, I think the worst stories are... Uh, I think the worst stories probably Robbie Morrison's. Oh, Hard Day's um, Night? Hard, Hard Day's Night, yeah. Which just didn't, just didn't work for me. Felt, uh, if anything, felt too thought out, thought through. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel that it, like it was trying too hard. I felt like it was all there on the page. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it, again, it felt like something that he had like really sat down and thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and I've worked out how I'm going to structure it, and it's going to have these these like visual motifs that are going to play around, and I'm doing it like, and I've really put all my thought into this, and at some point he sucked the life out of it, and so mm -hmm. it was all really present, like immediately. Do mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like there was there was nothing to feel for a better way of putting it, hmm. but I I think that um, you know I I think this things Rennie stories like a night in the opera is 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 fine, you it's... know holding on holding on is fine club solve is fine, and I say that as someone who like I thought holding on was actually a really fun story in mm -hmm. in a sort of flashback way, right? You know that I did like. I don't know why, but uh, I thought the God, what are they called? The the bodybuilders who show up. Oh, it's, uh, it's like the Lucy Lawless, Lawless Muscle Core or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like I think it's I think it's a really funny idea, and like Club Sob, I think has great art by Simon Fraser. Like I really like the art in that uh, mm -hmm. that one. Uh, mm -hmm. But things like you know, Meet the Flukes or See Sammy Run just didn't didn't really land for me. See Sammy Run, I think, was the weakest of the, the Rennie stories for me in this volume. Honestly, I think the majority of them were pretty weak. I think I think Holding On was the strongest, and I think that it's possible that See Sammy Run might have worked for me with a different artist. I thought that... Yeah, the, could... art, the art did not work for that. But again, See Sammy Run, I thought the, the twist was really obvious. Hmm. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a I think it's a three parter and it's a three parter that you like anyone and again I do think this is the art fault mm -hmm. like it's very clear from from within like the first page that the girlfriend shows up that like she's the mastermind behind the plot ah see like, I didn't like, I, yeah really? I didn't get that because yeah. no 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 I agree yeah, no, the, I the totally reason I'm saying that is yeah. uh, if you look at the first page. Like the the you see her in the doorway, you see her cuddling the 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 mob boss, and then he pulls her away, and then you get a shot of her. The net shot, she's looking back at him, and she's like smiling as if she knows something that he doesn't. Mm. And like that just felt so much of a giveaway to me. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, she's like she's clearly up to something, right? And mm -hmm. then the net 
like you see her again two pages later and again that page ends with her like spying on the mob boss and smirking and it's like okay she's she's the bad guy right like it 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 gives everything away yeah just just too easily too early right you know um that that and and again feels like it's it's it uses up all its tricks uh, or uses up its goodwill too early and it spreads the story too long. Well, you know? I think that, that actually, interestingly enough, um, that is, I think that, like, Meet the Flukes, I think I would have enjoyed if it had been a 2000 AD sto- one-parter. Like, as a one-parter, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, it is in, it is in 2000 it is. AD. It yeah, is. It's okay. a one. It's a one parter. It's six pages. Jesus, it's too long. It's it six pages. It feels long. Yeah, right? it really does. I was like, wow, because they dragged it out. En- there's mm-hmm. not enough of a joke, right? The the joke is, or rather, they get to the punchline too early. Yeah, exactly. And then they've got a page of dragging it out or something. But yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. It's a six pager that should have been a four pager, which is amazing. Yeah, which which is kind of the problem throughout. Like even holding on, which I again I think is a really good. Um, like old fashioned, yeah. dread comedy strip, dread right. comedy one off. Like I think genuinely doesn't burn out his goodwill because that last panel gag works. Mm. But I think again that story's probably a page too long, but yes. because the last panel works, you come away being like, okay, sure, fine. Mm. I disagree that that last joke is a is a barn burner for me. I do agree that it was a page too long, but. Honestly, I would say all three of those stories, uh, all three of these particular Renu stories, I don't think A Night at the Opera worked at all, really, um, had a lot of, like, they they are classic Dread stories, and the thing is, is you kind of realize, like, oh, right, like, classic Dread stories were five pages long, you know what I mean? Like, they... Yeah, or, or sometimes four, yeah. Right, and that's that may be part of why they work. Like the comedy that Wagner and Grant were doing worked because now that you've gotten to 2003 and you're never going to have less than six pages of a story, like it kind of gets fucked up. Um, and I, th- I think that's even more true when you get to like the Rennie material in the magazine. Yeah. Like War Crimes and Battle Local both just don't work for me. Mm-hmm. On, on like an on... A nowhere near the 2018 material, but B just in general, they feel mm-hmm. overlong. They feel overly complicated, uh, and they just feel that they lack the um, simplicity, I guess, um, mm-hmm. of the 2018 material. It feels like Rennie is getting like wrapped up in the idea that like, well, these are 10 page stories or 12 page stories in this, in this actually. So yeah, so so the magazine stuff is farts, which is the John Wagner and Carlos Scare thing, which is just like terrible, but also like terrible in such a way that A, it feels like a like a Russell Davis Doctor Who episode. Yeah. Um, but also like almost charming. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that is again, Carlos Scare can make you forgive a lot of bad material. Um, but then Gordon Rennie does War Crimes with Lee Sullivan, and then he does Battle Local with Simon Colby. Right. And neither of those stories work at all. And then you've got well, a, another John Wagner, and then you've got the Garth Ennis story. Right. And uh, uh, arguably, the marriage game is is 
is bad Wagner. Like, it's not... Oh, yeah. The marriage game is bad Wagner for a number of reasons, but honestly, the primary one is I get the joke. Anyone who role-plays Judge Death is going to end up thinking they're Judge Death. I'm over it. I don't need to read another 12-page story about it. Well, I right. It's, it's a 12-page story. It's the same material. And I also thought whatever the little ending part was, the ending gag was a bit of a... I was going to say a wet fart, but I'm like... But that's going to trip us up because we're going to talk about farts. One of the things that I thought was interesting about farts is I think it benefits from placement. Like like you said, it, <laughs> I was – because it follows Inside Job by Ian Edgington and Steve Pugh, which also is kind of, uh, oh, you know what's great? Dread versus, like, poop stories. And yeah. uh, I thought Inside Job – really shows you how ta- how good farts is you know what i mean like i it's a job in terms of writing is terrible but that cpr is just i love that cpr a lot I love yeah the, that CPR the art is lot. is pretty great but there's a few things that i'm just like yeah. but the story is just terrible especially like you know the end of it is literally the assassin is literally shitting himself out of the, the guy's body. Yeah. And it's then like, ha ha, you guys, I'm a living shit. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, oh, really? That's, yeah. That's, that's what we're doing. And, and the other thing is, um, Inside Job plays itself relatively straight. I mean, again, the villain is a living shit, but it plays itself relatively straight. Whereas Farts knows exactly what it is. It's called Farts, which is P-H-A-R-T-Z, by the way. Yeah. Um, but also the first page is a splash page. That goes yeah. silent but deadly. They came from outer space. Farts, yeah. With no, dread going, exactly. it's raining farts. Respirator down. Like it, they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, which yeah. I think works very much in their favor. Yeah. No, you know? I agree. Uh, it, it's it's Wagner. It's Ascara. Honestly, it's the it is the it's the sort of material that Alan Grant was really not able to put over, but but Wagner and Ascara are. I feel so. Yeah, no, it works. Yeah, again, I'm I'm not necessarily sure they're able to put it over as much as like I even even on a bad day, something as just fucking dumb as this. Mm. Like the the end, the end of farts is that the fully grown farts, who by the way are gaseous aliens who are invading Earth, um, are are sort of obliterated and become baby farts. Which then possess a judge, so there's a page of, there's a panel of a judge farting, like, and then the the punchline of the story is the newsreader explains that all the alien farts have been taken care of, goes off the air, and then actually farts says, right. "Well, that's another one over, boy. Have I been hosing that one?" And and then gets jumped on because they think yeah. that he's possessed by an alien, like, you know, again, they know exactly how stupid the story is, yeah. but. The flip side of that is, this story is dumb as shit. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I think, I think for whatever reason, I was fully prepared to hate it right from the first page. I was like, oh no, really? And yet, I, I did almost despite myself uh, end up enjoying it. That said, war crimes, although dragged out and poorly plotted, um, worked for me. I, I generally, I, I like. Again, it may be the classic. 
it's a story that I like. Like Gordon Rennie, Gordon Rennie being like, hmm, how do I learn to how do how do I learn to write like John Wagner? Oh, I see what movie's playing on the telly, and I rip it off. And I and and I I like the movie that they're ripping off. I can't necessarily think of the name of it, but it's you know it's it's a total it's totally been done, and uh, I kind of liked it. I particularly with the um, at the end where Dread has cleared the name of the the person who's been assassinated for being a. Uh, for being the traitor yeah yeah being the traitor um and the the his mother the crazy old woman who keeps trying to get people to listen to her and believe her you know dread finally is able to let her know that you know her son has been cleared and there's an official apology issued and of course she's 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 in a coma on a respirator and literally dies right after so yeah, I, honestly, I'm kind of surprised. I'm like, uh, apart from the fact that war crimes is um, poorly plotted because there's kind of a little chain of dread going and having the same scene six times and then the seventh time or maybe it's four times and the fifth time the guy's like, yeah, but what you didn't know was blah, blah, blah. Dread's like, yeah, yeah. Brock, you know, like. They no, but, the, but that is that movies. is what the problem, right? It, yeah. it's mm-hmm. it feels like you it's too repetitive in order to fill the space. The other problem is I think the art doesn't work for it at all, and and that's that's much of my problem with Battle Loco that follows as well. Oh, I Battle like Loco! Cole, is, I like Simon yeah. Colby's art in other two thousand eight strips. I think he does really good Rogue Trooper stuff. I think Jaeger is amazing, right. um, but this this work here is just the art just does not work for the story and the story also feels like it's just um over and underwritten simultaneously oh it's 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 uh, the story is a failure again it's that thing of gordon rennie being like oh right uh the next step the 36 chambers of shaolin where each chamber is a new uh john wagner a story pastiche that he has to do where he's like, oh, offensive ethnic stereotypes. It's the, yeah, it's yeah. the racism. Yeah, time for the racism, basically, is what <laughs> the story should have been called. Pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. No, no, it's bad. The art, I do not like the art at all on it. It felt, I, it just, yeah, no, that, the, of, of all the stuff that felt, um, like, this is this was the the piece for me in particular that was like okay this is right out of early post Wagner nobody knows what the fuck they're doing and and they're just anything anything they can do yeah did not didn't like it is is just a terrible just terrible at at I would say arguably every level I I feel like we've done almost every story uh the one we've probably not said anything about at this point is the Hard Day's Night which you know, I just, I just didn't like, like I said, but like you seem surprised by that, which made me think, do you have a much fonder experience with Hard Day's Night than I do? Uh, yeah, I thought it, I thought it, I thought it, how do I put it in a, here comes the racism part two. One of the things that I thought was, uh, the, the, the reason why the twist in the story worked for me was the idea of like, well, okay, it's that classic, like, this story would be incredibly racist, except they have a, you know, 
a, a Latino judge for like the first time ever. And so he's clearly there as kind of the token to show you that the judges aren't, you know, that the story isn't racist. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no, he's the bad guy. So you didn't see that coming. And we're racist, y'all. And and so literally kind of in a one panel I, before the twist happened, I caught it. And so I, I that worked for me. I have to ask, are you saying the racist because the Latino guy's the bad guy? Or is there another reason you're saying the story? No, no. Uh, sorry. Um, so I feel a real common trope is you have white guy investigating because the whole story is it, the hard day's night is a kidnapping, but the kidnapping is happening. It's all tied to um, the Salazars. Like there's this whole thing of the Escobarites of fairly minor criminal faction formed from the ranks of Colombian refugees allowed into the big Meg a few years earlier. In addition to drugs, they specialized in kidnapping just like back in the old country, the worst habits are the hold habits to shake. So it's racist as fuck, essentially, is the short term. It's like, oh, hey, you know what? We haven't seen Latinos, many Latinos in Mega City One. Here they are. They're all Colombians and drug dealers and killers. But traditionally sort of in that way of like, oh, we're not racist. We have a black police chief that's going to yell at our white hero to show you that we're not racist. There is kind of a, uh, an upright Latino cadet who is riding with dread, who's like, yeah, you inspired me to be a judge. Do you, 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 you rescued me and my brother when we were held hostage. You jumped through the window and did a rolling shoot and killed people. And that was amazing. And do you remember that? And Dred's like, let's keep writing. And it's, again, it's supposed to feel like a beat of like, oh, Dred's done so much. He doesn't even remember all the lives that he saved. But in fact, it is a big twist. The reason why people like me are invisible to the twist is we are mistaking, um, you know, a, a, essentially we're, it's it's being hidden in inside the trope. The trope being like, here's the young Latino guy to show you that we're not racist because otherwise every depiction of Latinos in this are as, you know, essentially kidnapping Colombian gangsters, immigrants who are all untrustworthy. Therefore, we've got the upright guy. No, gotcha. He's also, he's the ultimate. He's also a Can't guy. trust him. Yeah, exactly. And so... So it's kind of a nasty racist trope to sort of to kind of do the whole like, oh, you thought it was one way, but no. But on the other hand, it sort of kind of worked, I guess, for me. Um, it, so, yeah, it worked. Wasn't the strongest thing ever. I didn't hate it. I'm fascinated that you are kind of. I mean, on the one hand, you're very forgiving of the trifles if they are if the art's good enough and they're trifling enough, you yeah, seem far more upset I, if, by if, the bigger. If you give me, yeah. If you mm -hmm. give me a story where the story, if you give me a, a like a one-off uh, where the story is, you know, possible at best, but mm -hmm. it looks great. I'm much mm -hmm. more a fan than if it's a good story, but it looks like shit. Like right. art for, especially for the shorter stories means a lot for me. And honestly, mm -hmm. for the longer series as well, like, you know, the, the Ennis thing, I think writing wise is no great shakes, 
but I think John Higgins draws the living shit out of it. Holy and that, shit, it looks and that, so and that good, Graham. Yeah. And that does, like, get a lot of points for me, you yeah. know? And so you have you have the the Sam Fraser thing. You have the the um, you know even Trial of Orlock. I like more than I would have otherwise because I think Cam Kennedy draws shit of it. The the CPU are mm-hmm. for for um for the Eden Edgington story as well. Right, gets at a lot of points because again there's there's that that Ian Edgington script is not good, but right. CPU's art is fucking glorious, like Technicolor loveliness. Yeah, whereas I think uh, I just wrote it off. So um, yeah, I, th- I like there's there's a few panels in there that I'm just like, yep, it's, it's fucking great. There's a page where um, the last panel is Dre Pony has gone to the 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 reader for all intents purposes, and not only do I like the blur on the gun, like so you've mm-hmm. got depth of field like in a photograph, but the panel before that of Dre is just fucking lovely, mm. just absolutely fucking lovely. Um, so yeah, art art makes a big difference as to how I I feel about the stories in Dread. Uh, weirdly enough, more than I would say other comics. Interesting. I think art really really makes a difference for me on Dread. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think I think art is crucial. Uh, definitely, I just think that it's fascinating to me that I like you said, like you're sort of. Um, you're more forgiving of a story that doesn't overstay its welcome if it's not good, but the art is good. Whereas I think I'm a little more dismissive of those and a little more into technically competent stories that may, that, that again, are, are not any great shakes, but the art to me is good or, but if it's not great, it's still sort of, fine for me you know again yeah 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 yeah. so monkey on my back is uh what we're going to talk about the final story in the volume it's from judge dread magazine 2004 2006 it is from what i've been told the last uh story that garth ennis has written about uh dread uh sorry about dread the last dread story that ennis has written um Art is by John Higgins. It is superlative. Uh, it is um, arguably, uh, it is John Higgins' idea. My understanding is John Higgins pitched the story to Garth Ennis of Dread um, having his mind possessed by a cursed earth parasite. And this was a, a pitch for DC's aborted Legends of the Law which was going to be their um their their series of of dread related of dread stories apparently so interestingly which, which, enough which not not only like was published but the collections coming out soon oh is it oh okay well yeah. apparently this story did not make it in there but it in, intriguingly enough was put together by Higgins Higgins had been doing some american work uh for various um, publishers, including Vertigo, which is why I think he approached Ennis, and Ennis was was game, and it ended up uh, changing quite a differently, quite a quite a bit between that original premise of Higgins and Higgins putting it together, and what we eventually see print in two thousand four to two thousand six. Um, it is a flashback story. Um, 
and uh, taking place in the year 2099, wherein the chief judge has, uh, it starts with his announcement that for the 22nd century, he is going to revise um, the judge's uh, role in Mega City One. Um, judicial control of the city will be partially relaxed, allowing the citizens greater freedom to police themselves. And more importantly, at least for the purpose of the story, the genetic laws will be repealed, granting the cursed Earth mutants access to our city. Um, this is, God, what's his name? The chief judge is uh, Goodman, uh, interestingly yeah, enough. Yeah, this yeah, is, good, yeah, good and this is, dr- much, yeah. yeah, at all. And in fact, uh, as a secondary supporting character, is his second in command is Judge Cal, who we all know as the fucking amazing Judge Caligula from the classic Wagner Grant story covered in is it is it case files volume three or volume four volume or is it two, two? i think it is it's two. two right it's cursed earth and then and then the judge cal stuff amazing stuff so super super early shout out um graham i'm just gonna come right out and say it the art in this is fucking beautiful it is so goddamn gorgeous um for whatever reason um you know Higgins draws dread with sort of a um closer to the earlier um dread outfit something that's a little more streamlined um well i i thought that was intentional because it's a flashback strip right because he also has the, the original helmet which is basically rounder yeah it's rounder they also do a few other things that to you know to tuck the uh you know, I feel like Dread's got a little bit more of a, um, at some points that color practically feels like a little Planet of the Vampire-esque vent thing. But I also want to, the reason why I mention it is this is perhaps best understood at best, at, at, uh, which is why I keep saying best, as an Elseworlds story. Um, because as people will point out online, the whole point of the story is is that they are going to let the cursed earth mutants um uh they're going to open up the gates and let them through the wall into the city and it's actually judge cal that builds the wall um it doesn't get built until the day the law died so this story really technically can't exist within the regular dread continuity because it centers entirely and precisely around something that doesn't exist until after the story takes place. Fun fact. Who right? cares about who cares about continuity, Jeff? Well, and so this is the I thing. Mean, also, Graham. Like, it's, it's a it's a flashback. Do you know what I mean? Like there there's there is a an, a level of um like sure, do you know what I mean? Like Right. That's what I'm saying. Elseworlds. And I I say this is someone who didn't really care that much for the story. Right. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. To me, it's a rip and good yarn. It doesn't, that part doesn't matter with like a very huge asterisk, which I think we'll get to. So this story is very much of a piece with Ennis in the sense of Dread is the biggest and baddest. Um, it has uh, also something that seems to work well for Ennis, which is Dread versus the judges as. Um, 
Dread and his uh, sidekick, Judge Henderson? No, what's her name? I honestly don't remember. It Judge is... Blood Device? Yeah, Judge Judge Chambers. Uh, God, really, Judge Chambers. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Judge Plot Device, who is kind of seen in sort of the traditional, um, you know, Dread has a female judge who has all the, who gets to have all the feelings and all the doubts and all the thoughts and, and seems to have a, have the humanity while judge, while dread has the, um, kick-assedness, the kick-assedness. Yes. I was, I was going to say the single mindedness to, to get things done. Ennis, uh, as ever, and again, part of why I prefer thinking of this is an Elseworlds, kind of really once again over eggs that pudding with dread not hesitating to blow the brains out of other judges uh at the old um drop of the proverbial hat uh they essentially suspect something is awry with judge goodman doing things that sound absolutely insane and ridiculous and intriguingly enough uh, Dread and Chambers looking at Goodman's history see that he had a um, situation with a pilot in space that a uh, judge that had come off a tour in the Cursed Earth or an exploratory thing. Basically, they su suspect Cursed Earth related shenanigans. Not surprising considering the whole point is all the mutants are going to be let into the, the from the cursed earth into Mega City One, which Dread and Chambers and probably everyone else is convinced is going to be a bad idea. Um, you get to see a little bit of that bad idea with big parts of Mega City One uh, exploding as the mutants run in and run rampant. Um, you see Dread and Chambers out in the cursed earth uh, investigating things. Uh, shooting things and learning about the existence of the monkey, a powerful cursed earth mutant capable of possessing people that was held at bay um, by superstitious natives until it was able to break free because of um, dumbass judges who ignored their warnings. And so we get the situation that we have now in which dread and chambers have to fight their way back into mega city one to defeat the the monkey on the judge's back hence the story title um and again a it looks beautiful holy fucking shit i love this art higgins does extraordinary stuff i took a screenshot he apparently was doing a very different um method for the first half of it but it is it to me it's just beautiful I was going to say, yeah. it's weirdly reminiscent of David Lloyd. Yes! Yeah, I got a really strong David Lloyd influence. Yep. Super which it, strong. Which works really fucking well, as we yeah. said. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, the early stuff is going for, for full-on early sort of painted Lloyd look. Um, things get modified a little bit as things go, but overall, I just love the look of this so very much. Um... And, you know, it's a story with a lot of shooting. It is also... I mean, it's a Garthana story. Yeah, it's a Garthana story. So, you know, um, and that's the thing that I think is interesting. Uh, Ford99, who is a listener, has talked uh, in the past about 
Ennis and Dread and how Ennis as a uh, Irishman from Belfast has a particular slant about law and order that is very hard from non-Northern Ireland Irish to look at uh, without some suspicion. And I would say that uh, sadly slash interestingly, the thing that I am least equipped to, to talk about, and hopefully you may or may not be better, is it is hard to imagine this story as anything but a uh, shockingly inelegant, fear-filled tirade about the potential unification of Ireland um, at this time. Like, I looked... 2002 didn't necessarily seem particularly full of it, but 2001 is filled uh, with month after month after month of negotiations between the IRA and the British government about what it would take to unify Ireland. Um, and I, I, that's interesting because I didn't I didn't think of it in those terms at all, and I think you're I think you're right to do that. Like yeah. I, I'm holding my hands up and saying, like, I, I'm an idiot uh, because I saw it as a very weirdly anti-immigration story. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Because that like it, it feels uh, genuinely sensationalistic in terms of the, the like fear of the outsider, because yeah. it's not just that the judges wants to keep the mutants out. It's that they're right to well, right? exactly. Company, they fucked everything up. Like, it, yeah. it feels, I mean, genuinely, shockingly uh, yeah. anti-immigration, or as you said, and I think you're right, like anti-unification anti, um, of and, Ireland. Yeah, anti-unification in a way that is shocking, filled with dread saying things like, you know, what, you think they're just going to forget all the crimes that were done against them, and... You know, we're talking about years of genetic apartheid. And also, these are all monsters and killers, and they're going to come in and kill us. And it, and it's, uh, it only and they really, do. yeah, and they do, and they do. So I think, again, you know, that is, it's hard not to see it as a context. And again, sort of is a, a an explainer, I guess as to why it's very important that there is a wall, um, you know, literally happening in a story taking two, two, you know, two years or whatever before that wall's actually built. So uh, I wish, Graham, I, I'm, I'm glad that you sort of also kind of like, oh yeah, right. Like, I don't really have the tools to pull that apart. And so I think anyone interested in this, I hope... Fort 99's like, uh-uh, not for me, not this time, has done such a stellar job of chiming in in the notes. Maybe he will have thoughts on this quite specifically, but it did strike me as someone who admittedly, I don't I don't think I would have been, um, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have tumbled to it or even had thought, thought of it if it hadn't been for seeing um, Ford's various notes about some of Ennis's uh, biases. Um, so I'll be curious to see if he thinks that I'm closer to the mark here or not, or if he smartly leaves me to dangle. But 
but um... uh, one of the things that I think is is interesting, and I'm going to say this quickly, and then I think we should move on to like Drock Dross and wrapping things up, yep. is that um, later on in the history of Dread, we're going to get this happening in the actual continuity. Mm. The idea of like, do we let mutants in? Mm-hmm. Do we do we do we pull back on some of the apartheid? Do we pull back on some of the? I don't want to say apartheid because like it feel like it feels um, crass. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's an imperfect metaphor to say the least, right? Yeah. Um, but but do we pull back on some of this uh, bigotry, some of this fear? And if we do, what does that mean? And what is the response of people? Mm-hmm. And what happens there? is in such relief to the way that Ennis portrays it that for mm-hmm. me it makes Ennis's bigotry all the more apparent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I feel I feel that when Wagner and others get around to it. And I don't mm-hmm. even think we're gonna see this happening in the case files. I think it might if we do it, we're gonna have to do it in the the, the episodes after we've caught up with the case files. Mm-hmm. But um I think it's handled with so much more sensitivity. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think it's handled in such a way that you don't get the mutants coming in and just fucking shit up. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really does, like, having recently read some of that material, mm-hmm. reading this Ennis story, it was just like, holy shit. Like, what yeah. is happening here? Mm-hmm. Because this feels, um, honestly, just kind of gross. Like, it, 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 feels, it yeah. feels, like, really uh, unpleasant. Well, like the way you that said, this story kind of, kind of just like signs on to the yeah, we should keep them out. Those mm-hmm. fuckers, we're yeah. much better. Like you know, we sh- we're much better in our bubble. Yeah, you use the the adjective jingoistic, and I think I think that kind of perfectly encapsulates it. You know, um, it really does feel uh, uncomfortable, and it's interesting. I'm glad to know that if nothing else, I mean, not that you're. Like, yes, as a Garth Ennis fan, I was shocked, shocked. But, I mean, the fact that you, even with it seeming like just an anti-immigration thing, and it it may be very hard as Americans to not hear stories about, like, a wall and letting people back, you know, over the wall and having it be, like, a bloodbath and not be like, hmm, that seems a little, uh, seems a little, uh, little, uh, little, 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 little MAGA-ish. You know, but yeah. all the way back in 2003, you definitely find yourself being like, what's going on here? And why does it feel weirdly like, well, of course, you know what I mean? Like, it's so it's so unchallenged in the story. It's all it is such a, a, a priori assumption, no, not an assumption, but like, yeah, you know, just like facts and evidence that it's really disquieting. So, but holy shit, the art! Oh my god, you guys, seriously! Oh, oh no, Higgins draws the living shit out of it. It's, oh it my looks, god, it looks amazing. It's it's just a shame, honestly, that it's not for a better story. Uh, I mean, agreed, but sort of in that same way of like, I mean, at least at least he's got more to do than draw giant farts. So, I mean, you know, he's he's at least it'll. It, this story at least gives him a lot to draw. And it, and be, I think because of the David Lloyd, like you said, that sort of Lloyd influence, there's a lot of uh, um, a lot of pyrotechnics that just... Oh, ha, 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 ha. No, the, the, there's some lovely, like, 
uh, shading effects. Like it, it really yeah. is. It, it's it's electric. And honestly, the colors are fucking great for it as well. Yeah, like he can very much. So. I, as you can see from anyone who's read like the original Killing Joke printing or, or Watchmen, right? Higgins loves his bright colors, and it works in this story. Yeah, yeah. Higgins' colors in this are just fucking amazing. No, it's a very very attractive strip. It really is. He's done done a great job. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. Let's see if it says that might be a thing. Interestingly enough, did you know that um, they they did not tell him when they recolored the killing joke without him? They didn't? No, they That's never bothered to, to let him know. Yeah, exactly. Who recolored? Um, did Boland recolor? Yeah, Boland recolored it. Uh, recolored by Boland, and and no one bothered to tell Higgins. Um, That's like I'm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he's he's like I'm no longer colorist on both Watchmen and The Killing Joke. I'm saddened that no one at DC could be bothered to tell me about it. But comics are a business first and foremost. It's their property, and they can do what they want with for it. With it, uh, yeah. So yes, the Legends of the Law series. Higgins approached Ennis with the idea. Um, rather than simply filling in his line work with computer color, he tried something new. The story was richly colored over pencils, scanned into the computer um, to evoke darker, grittier, dead, dread history. So. Uh, I wanted to try something that was a mix of painted work and fully tonal pencil, but it was so bloody time-consuming. I ended up doing it half pencil and half line and wash. Um, so, yeah, uh, and for those who want to know, I pulled that. Thank God Google Books was willing to show me bits and pieces from Michael Mulcher's 2000 AD, The Creative Interviews, Volume 4 from which I pulled that material and I'm looking forward to picking up those books. I have to say, Graham, I think I, I think I'm going to get them. I think you should. They're great. And they're all on the 2000 AD Webster. Jeff, yep. Drock or Dross? Drock or Dross, Dread or Tread? I'm going to say Dread and Drock. And you, Graham, you were saying? Uh, I, I'm splitting the difference, to be honest. I, I do think that it's, it's so You're close You're like Drocks. Yeah, yeah, you, it you is. Were saying it's dross. dross. Yeah, dross. Um, yes, there you go. It, it's, I, I mean, on balance, it's drock, right? Because there isn't anything like bad, bad here. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's stuff that just isn't particularly good. So ultimately, drock, but it's really fucking close. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's really close for me. Um, favorite story. Yeah, I was going to say favorite. Do you are you favorite story and favorite Wagner? Like, did you want to do favorite Wagner and Wagner or no? Oh God, my favorite story is probably shit. I don't know what my favorite story for this one is. Real honestly, mm-hmm. um, I genuinely don't know what my favorite story is for this. I. Appallingly, I think it might even be Trial of Orlock, even though I think Trial of Orlock is kind of a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But le- again, I love that car- uh, that Cam Kennedy art. Yeah, you sh- you sure do. You yeah, sure so do. It, it really it really might be the can- the um, Trial of Orlock. Yeah. Um, it's it's a tough call because honestly, all the ones that you called out as underwhelming, um, I could see. I think I'm probably going to have to give it to Revenge of the Chief Judge's Man. I think for the most part, there were so many scenes where I was like, yeah, 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 do it. That, um, 
But I also quite like the Satanist, and although, again, incredibly potentially disturbing in its undercurrents, I thought the John Higgins art on Monkey on My Back, I was just in love. Um, I think the fail, the story for me that's the biggest fail is either Inside Job or uh, Bato Loco. I think probably it's going to end up being Bato Loco because it doesn't really have an ending and the art is terrible. Um, yeah, Bato Loco is just like a complete misfire on, on some yeah. levels. Um, yeah. I Let's see, what's what's my least favorite? It's probably C. Samiron, to be honest. I think mm-hmm. C. Samiron is just like it, it's very obvious. Like the twist is really obvious really early on. Mm-hmm. It's mostly the fault of the art but also like even beyond that the art's not particularly good yeah i i you know what I'm, i've changed my mind holding on is my favorite strip oh wow that's genuinely surprising i holding i get on, it because you, you know, said I, good I, things about it yeah. holding on is my favorite strip in part because like it's over in six pages but also that last joke you know it's not a thigh slapper like i know you said that it's not yeah. but it works Okay. Uh, and, like, it's got the good grace to be over quickly. Right. Right. So holding on to my favor and um, and the Cezanne run is, is my least favorite. Good I news, have, bad I, news for Gordon Rennie right there. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, nothing really sums up your judgment of Drosk, like your favorite story being one that didn't stick around too long. So, you know. That really no, does exactly, sum right? it up. I, I, yeah. I, think, I think it's something he said there. That's for sure. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I like this volume a lot more uh, than you did. So I'll be kind of curious to hear in the comments how uh, everyone feels. Net time, Jeff. Yes. Case Files 38 uh, wow. includes the return of Rico. Ooh. That's current Rico, not Yay. old school Rico. Um but also the return of John Smith and Siku. Oh, that's right. The <laughs> like t- together, the you, yeah. The team that brought you fetish are back, back <laughs> uh, for like a five-part story, a five or six-part story as well. Wow. Uh, so that's that's a thing we have to look forward to. Uh, but if it makes you feel any better, the return of Rico is in a strip that is John Wagner and Carlos Escara. Yay! I love how Ascara draws Rico. I'm very excited by that. So that that is good news, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, otherwise there is going to be show notes for this up on Monday at some point at waitpodpodcasts.com. I say at some point, I genuinely don't know this time because um, I have a day job now. So That's right. We'll see. Uh, it will be up at some point and on Monday at waitpodcasts.com. Um, until then, we are available on Twitter at Wait Podcasts. Jeff is available on Twitter at Lazy Bassett at L E Z Y B A S T I T. And I'm on Twitter at Graham M at G R A E M E M. And we are a Patreon supported podcast, which means Jeff has something to say to you right now. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Um, we are incredibly grateful for all your listening to us. We've been blabbing for quite some time now. I haven't looked, but I know that we are high up in the hundreds of hours of blabbity blab. And um, that 
is something that means a lot to me, being able to talk to my best friend three times a month for hours on end about one of my favorite topics in the world um, is just the best. And having you guys um, listen and drop by on Twitter and ask questions and make jokes. Um, Someone referred to me as the waffle widow when I was talking about the fact that I hadn't been to the waffle window in like over two years. And I didn't, I forgot to give them props for that, but it still makes me chuckle, Graham. I got to say <laughs> Jeff Lester waffle window, waffle widow. I'm also not sure if it's better to be the waffle window widow. Cause I think that's funnier to say, or just waffle widow. Like it's, a, I don't know how much to over egg that pudding. Um, also want to give a super thanks to the fine people at Patreon. Not only do they listen to us, they give us a little bit of their hard-earned dosh, which means a lot, just a lot. Like one of these days, I'm going to have to post the Drock-related piece of original art that I now own. And yes, that is you will. so directly responsible for, uh, for you guys. Thank you in one hand, because a little bit of the extra disposable dosh to give to uh, the remarkable PJ Holden and also without you guys Drock and Baxter building our previous read through of the first 416 issues the Fantastic Four and change uh, would not have happened and I would not be able to form any sort of opinion about a Judge Dredd story much less a coherent one, which, of course, Graham can jump in and point out is still not the case. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm closer to it. Graham? Oh, Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, thank you. As always, you're the best. Smooches. I love the end of the Smooches! Smooches, <laughs> smooches uh, citizen! <laughs> uh, we are because of uh, Comic-Con next week. And then... Uh, you're traveling mother-in-law yeah 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 Yeah. we may do a super Uh, shorty the following week maybe maybe if you're down for it short version is like our schedule is kind of kind of be a bit weird yeah um actually for a while because august is going to be a bit weird as well but hopefully in a way that will impact you less whatnot um short version please bear with us for our schedule um for people who don't know um, I am now a staff writer at Popverse, Yay! which means... thank you, Jeff. Uh, which means, amongst other things, that um, I'm actually going to be doing a lot more conventions this year, which is great. Apart from when it comes to recording podcasts, because <laughs> it means I'm traveling a lot more. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I'm going to do San Diego, which I was doing anyway, but now because of I've got the Popverse job, I'm also going to be doing C2E2, and I'm going to be doing Emerald City. For anyone who knows when those are in the calendar, I basically have a convention every two weeks for the next six weeks. Wow. Um, which is insane. <laughs> which genuinely not. That's just an insane schedule. Um, but it means that the recording is going to be a little bit wonky. The plus side, we should almost definitely, touch wood, be able to get at least three podcasts out in August. Uh, we may... We'll see how it goes. Like, we'll make it a super short one on the week that Jeff is is traveling for his mother-in-law. Yeah. But if there's only two podcasts in July, I apologize profusely. I'm sure Jeff does as well. Like, it is something that we 
that is kind of out of our hands to a certain degree. Uh, but August will hopefully be better. And then in September onwards, we're going to be fine because who does conventions in September? Right? <laughs> the Nobody. voice I say of that. doom. L- literally, there's a, there's a Portland, Oregon convention in September. Yeah. I don't have to travel right. for that. I'm, I'm here. Um, anyway, it's Strock, which means Jeff is going to sing you out right now. Yeah, that's right. I think this is around the time where I sort of um, uh, kind of steal up my old vocal cords and go, Drock! You're under arrest, citizen. Report to the ISO cubes, and we'll see you in 30. <laughs>